0: Can you imagine being lost at sea, you're on a boat, your equipment has failed, you are being blown along by the elements, you've lost sight of land, hours turn into days, days start to blur into each other. The darkness of night turns into a battle of the mind to stay alive. The light of the day turns onto a fight to remain hopeful that you might bump into land somewhere. But day after day, you drift. Night after night, you fear for your life. Hour by hour, you feel it slipping away in the darkness. And then one night, you see a light. And something leaps inside of you as you think it's possibly another boat. Can you get to them without any equipment to get you there? Will they see you in the darkness of night? And then the light disappears and your heart sinks then the light comes back on and you see the boat and you start to scream but you know that your scream doesn't go anywhere over the wind and the waves and the light disappears and then the light comes back again and you start to think maybe this could be a lighthouse maybe this is land and the light disappears and the light comes on again and you say surely this is it and you start to feel your soul revived as you start to have hope again that you are close to shore that possibly you could swim there And as you wait for daybreak, you get to see land. And you think finally, survival, hope, life. The things that had started to just disappear from everything within me. My soul had started to bleed out if that could be such a thing. And as we try to picture that scene, we bring it a little bit closer to home and we realize how often we feel those same emotions of desperateness in the darkness where our equipment has failed and we feel like, do we, every night, is in the darkness of night, is it a battle to stay alive? Is it a battle to think, can I make it through another day? Every day is a battle of the soul to say, is there hope for me? What purpose do I have? What do I get up for? And in those moments, we're looking for little lights that will point us in a direction that will take hold of our souls and give us hope to just have another day of life and survival and it's into this context that Jesus says these words I am the light of the world I am the light of the world today I have the privilege of closing off of our series closing out our series I am. These statements of Jesus, we live in a world today where culture is so against and so anti everything that is binary, one or zero, black, white, everything must be gray, everything must be open to interpretation, everything must be as I see it and as I decide it, but Jesus did not leave that open for us. He was quite comfortable to stand up and say statements, I am this. I am this. And the Israelites knew what that meant, and it was not open for interpretation. And so today we come in the midst of darkness, in the midst of culture, in the midst of, in the midst of our souls being pulled apart in so many directions, in the midst of us knowing that some of our equipment is broken and we're not quite navigating straight. In the midst of all of these things, we hear these words of Jesus, I am the light of the world, and we are confronted with what we're going to do with that. As we've had the privilege as a team of preaching through the series, we started off with Jesus' words, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and we looked, and I think the standout, uh, the standout picture of that message was uh, the example of trying to climb Mount Everest, and we can do all our planning, we can decide on which way we're going to go, we can have all of our food, back, we can have everything, and then we get there and we realize, oh shucks, I am not prepared for this, and it is a single person called a Sherpa who says actually because of weather conditions, because of time of year, because of this that's happened, because of that that happened, I will get you to the top. It is a person that we trust in. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the Sherpa carries our baggage, carries our burdens, carries all of that. And he forget our navigational maps, forget every way leads to the top of the mountain, forget all of that, the Sherpa gets you there, as Jesus does. Then we looked at, I am the good shepherd, and uh, the picture that was for me, I know there were a number of pictures shared in that message, but uh, the one that stood out for me was, was like a, the house that we were living in or the building that we work in on fire and ablaze. And there's one room that the fire hasn't yet touched, but there's no escape, there's no exit out of that room. And a fireman comes running through in all of his fire protective gear. And he says, you have to come with me. I've got a fire blanket. You've got to come with me, but we've got to go back through the flames because that's where the exit is. And our response is, no, thank you. I'm going to go into this room where there's no fire, but we get trapped in there because there is no escape. And he says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the one that though we go through the valley of death, you will experience no evil. I'm going to I, I lay out a table before you. I'm the good shepherd. I'm going to get you through These times, will you trust in me? I am the good shepherd. And then last week, John talking about uh, the I am the bread of life. And remember, we go into a context that is probably unfamiliar to many of us in this room, but certainly not unfamiliar to us as South Africans, is food security. And these people had come and for three days they hadn't eaten when they with Jesus. And then Jesus feeds them and he does a miracle with the, the five loaves and the two fish. And then into that context, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the security. I am the security you're looking for. You have food and security. I can supply you food, but actually more than that, I can supply you life. And from a position of secured life, we get to live life differently. And John used the example, and so I'm going to highlight it here because every opportunity I get to say that South Africa beat Australia, I'm going to do it. But there was that cricket game, the 4-3-8 game. And for those that don't know cricket or are too... uh, we've got to be old to know this game. It was a world record that Australia scored, 438 runs and 50 overs. That's a lot. That's a lot. It had never been done before. And I remember where I was that day. I was actually playing a social cricket game on the Northwood field. And we all just kind of turned off our comms. We were like, oh, South Africa are done. And then later that day, we get a message, South Africa are still in it. And believe it or not, we win the game. But the stress and the anxiety of, are we going to get it? Now we talk back on that game and we go 438 runs. That's ridiculous, but I live life differently. There's no stress when I watch the game again. Just I, I don't watch 100 overs of cricket for fun, just by the But you get the principle. And Jesus comes, I'm the bread of life. You have eternal security, I'm your provision. You, you get security in me, And because we know that we are secure, because we know that our eternity is secure, we live life differently today. And then Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and we're going to look at that today and why that matters, why that is more than just a statement that he made. What is behind it? John chapter 8, verse 12 is where we find this statement of Jesus's, and he says this, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so, like always, we want to we take something of what Jesus says. We want to take what he said because he said it in a particular context which meant something. And he says it at a time which is called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's one of three holy festivals that the Jews, the, the Israelites, were called to have by God. And, and so, three times a year, what would happen is all of Israel would come to Jerusalem. So, it was a really buzzing time. The whole nation comes together in a city. But there's one week, there's one festival where foreigners are also encouraged to come. And that's the Feast of Tabernacles. And so this is the time that this statement is made by Jesus. So if you can just picture a city, imagine imagine all South Africa comes to Durban for a week. And then included in that, we are encouraged to bring all foreigners into, because of the blessing of God, into the city of Durban. So that's what's happening. All of South Africa in Durban for one week. You can imagine the excitement, the buzz, the what's going on in that time. And this is the context. And Jesus, we see, is, is teaching in the temple courts. And so in John chapter 7, he's, he's busy having, uh, speaking some things. And the Pharisees, the, the Pharisees are these guys that they, they were the religious leaders of the day, but they really did not see Jesus as the Messiah. And so they kept trying to discredit him. And so there's this whole discourse going on in John chapter 7, and, uh, and then I, I, I think what they probably did was try to hatch a little plan to try and distract Jesus, or catch him out, so they could discredit him. And so they find a the woman that is caught in adultery, and the, and the first few verses of John chapter 8, we see this, and they, they bring this woman caught in adultery before Jesus, because they knew the law said if someone's caught in adultery, they must die, they must be stoned. But they also assumed that Jesus would not do that because he has shown himself to be so contrary to the laws of God, what they believed. And so Jesus lived up to his reputation, but he does it so cleverly, he does it so wisely, he does it as though from heaven. And he says, actually, whoever is without sin can throw the first stone. And progressively, no one gets to throw a stone. And so what the Pharisees thought would discredit Jesus only improved the intrigue, only increased the intrigue around who this person Jesus was. And then Jesus kind of deals with that, and then it says this, and so then Jesus spoke again to the people. He just carried on teaching. And what happens straight after this is the Pharisees again try to derail him, and they start to question him about a whole lot of stuff, and how can your testimony be valid? You've got to have a witness, et cetera, et cetera. They try to derail him, but Jesus just... Carries on with it because it reveals his glory and then he goes from there and he opens the eyes of a blind man in John chapter 9. He goes and demonstrates, I am the light of the world and actually you have been blind for 30 or so years. I'm going to open your eyes to see light. So he demonstrates physically what he has claimed. So John chapter 7, 8 and 9 are incredible chapters in understanding Jesus But it's into this context that he makes this claim, I am the light of the world. And so it's our responsibility as those that follow Jesus to try and figure out, well, what does he mean by that? Is there some significant meaning? How are our lives enriched in greater way by this? And so we're going to, we want to ask this question. What was Jesus claiming when he said that I am the light of the world? And I think there are three, there are a couple of things that uh, the people of the day that he was speaking to would have automatically understood. Jesus didn't need to explain it to them. And so I'm going to explain it to us because we don't live in 2,000 years ago Israel. And so I'm going to bring us up to speed with what they would have assumed, what they would have understood, and then apply to what that means for us now. And the first is this, that God had always used light to attract attention for salvation. And so within the Israelite community, light was always regarded and revered as the presence of God and for salvation. And so we read the story of Moses. God had heard the cries of Israel. They'd been ca- held in captivity and darkness uh, in, a, in a sense. And um, he says, I'm going to free you now. And so Moses in the wilderness and Moses is attracted to a bush which is literally on fire but not being consumed. And it attracts Moses' attention, so he comes and he sees that he wants to intrigue, he wants to see the light, and as he's attracted to this, God's able to say, I've heard the cries of my people and I want to save them. And then we see a little bit later that there are some wise guys. Some wise men, and they're looking for for signs of when this Messiah, when Jesus is going to be born, and there's suddenly a bright star. Let's think about it. I think so often we just say there was the star of Bethlehem, and these guys knew. Uh, You've got to understand, these guys looked at the sky every night. The star must have been a little bit extraordinary that night for them to make such a big deal of it. And so God uses light to attract the attention of three men that then start to declare that the Messiah has arrived. That salvation has come. And so Israel, the the Jewish people, were not ignorant of the fact that light was given, that light had been used by God to open the way, to attract attention for salvation. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, they would have understood that what Jesus was saying is, I've got your attention. I'm, I'm the light. I've attracted your attention. And I am the way of salvation that wouldn't have been misunderstood in those days. The second thing we see is that God used light as both a guide and as a shield. So we read in Exodus chapter 13, that by day the Lord went ahead of them, Israel, in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And so there's this incredible story that the people of Israel understood that by the light of God, by the fiery pillar, they were able to move not only when it was light, they were able to move in darkness. So when they could not see, it was God's light that allowed them to carry on moving. That has significance for us, friends. That has significance for us that in the moment of our deepest darkness, in the moment of our equipment failure, in the moment of our hope starting to diminish, in the moment of our helplessness, in the moment of our darkness, in the moment of us starting to despair for life itself as we tossed backwards and forwards by the waves, fully at the peril, at the uh, is that the right word, at the peril of the ocean. If we are we're just fully submitted to that, if, if that's your story, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am that pillar of fire that even in the darkness, you are able to take steps forward. By me, you can keep moving. Darkness does not mean that we have to stop. Darkness does not mean that we have to become stuck. Darkness means we need to look for the light. And there is this fiery pillar by night And it's never moved from in front of the people. Jesus comes into a story that they knew well and says, I am the light of God. I am that one that will never leave from in front of you. I am that one that in the darkness you will know how to walk. Jackson and I had the privilege during our sabbatical to go to a place in South Africa called the Kango Caves with our children. And uh, there are a set of caves down in the Western Cape, and um, they are quite remarkable. But as we were, we were in them, uh, we, we walked into one, uh, one kind of um, cave, <laughs> one chamber. Thank you so much, next. And the guard turned off the lights. And immediately you went from wow and splendor to, okay, this is a problem. It is pitch black. I cannot literally, I cannot see my hand in front of my face. And I thought there would be light all the way through. I did not really pay attention to where the way out was. And now I'm stuck. And I'm grateful that the guy didn't leave us for an uncomfortable amount of time. But I can imagine that amongst the group of us, there would have been some, possibly myself, that if we had been left there for two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, in the dark, Hearts would have started to beat a little faster. Minds would have started to say, I'm starting to feel claustrophobic. The dark is starting to suffocate me and press in on me. I don't know my way out. Can someone turn the lights on, please? And then as the guy turned on the lights, immediately there's this sense sense of relief. But not only a sense of relief, but also a sense of splendor and awe as you look at the walls of this chamber with stalactites and stalagmites. And it is beautiful and glorious. And so God had always used light to lead His people in the darkness and as we take the Kango Cave story just as an example, we understand that even in our darkness, when we start to feel suffocated, when we start to feel the dark night of our soul, when we start to feel all of that, when we find the light of Jesus Christ, who has promised, not only does it start to alleviate and bring relief, alleviate pressure and bring relief, it also starts, enables us to start to see the beauty of what's around us see, unfortunately, we live in a country where just governmentally we're not flourishing. But what's happened is we've lost the light of Christ and we're starting to look at these false lights and these false saviors. We think that the government have a responsibility to do certain things or to be certain things to us. And so as we start to look around economically, as we start to look around uh, by the the politicians, we we start to see darkness closing in on us and we start to feel the pressure and the dark night of our soul because we're looking to the wrong lights. We're looking to the wrong saviour. And then Jesus comes and we see Jesus, this fiery pillar, who's standing in front of his people. So in the midst of the darkness, we're able to move with protection and with guidance. We're able to move forward. And suddenly, we start to see the beauty of this nation. We start to see the beauty of the resilience of us sitting in this room and of our friends. We start to see the beauty and the creativity of what can come out to overcome problems. It all depends on what we look at. Are we looking at the darkness or are we looking at the light, the true light? We can be suffocated by the darkness all around us. Or we can see the splendor and the majesty of what God is doing amongst us. Third, God used light to reveal his glory. We read the stories in Exodus chapter 16 through to 19 of flashes of lightning on the mountain and the people of Israel, they didn't want to go up the mountain. Moses, you go. We're too scared. We're going to get sorted out there. And so light was always used. But then there's this particular particular beautiful thing that I've just kind of had a greater revelation, greater understanding on this week as I've studied for this. God put the tabernacle into play, which was the place that he was going to rest on earth with his people. So it was the presence of God with his people, Israel. And then that tabernacle, while they were walking through the wilderness, so it would move from place to place, was then going to become a temple in Jerusalem and then become Jesus. And so at the tabernacle, there was this design, and how God designed it was there was this what they would call the mercy seat of God, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant contained um, the stone where God had had said, this is what you are to do, and this is what you're not to do, and and to do all of that, and then Aaron's staff to show the miraculous power of God that He would be with them, and all of this is in this, this overlaid gold, this beautiful box, but actually what it was known for was that's where the mercy of God would sit. And so the people of God would always be able to come to the mercy seat of God. And through the the blood of lambs and goats and bulls, uh, not goats, the lambs and bulls, uh, we'd be able to always find the forgiveness of our sin. And so the mercy seat of God was there. And then just before the mercy seat of God was the bread of the presence of God. God had said, and and so bread was always to be there. And as John uh, preached last week uh, on the, I am the bread of life, uh, it was to symbolise that actually God is always present with us. You will always be sustained, and then in front of that was this thing called the menorah, which was basically a can- uh, in our minds we just have a have a kind of seven a seven standard candle. It's a little different to that, but but it's it's this place that would have light, and it was the one thing that God said. My, my priesthood, the, the, the priests that serve the temple are to make sure that it is always a light. And so the one thing that God always had a light was the bread of His presence and His mercy seat. It was always under light. And so the people of Israel in the darkness of the wilderness would always see a flame, a bright on a the menorah. They possibly couldn't always see that, but you get... It was always burning. So, the one place that was always lit, the one place that was always visible, was the presence of God and His mercy. Now, we fast forward it to Jesus. In the temple, he's teaching from the temple courts at the Feast of Tabernacles. And so what the Israelite people used to do was this, that every, uh, every year when they had the Feast of Tabernacles, they would light a, 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 a menorah. They would, they would light in their own home as a memory of what God has done and as a prophetic declaration for a Messiah that is still coming. And so at the Feast of Tabernacles, every house has a menorah burning, has a candlestick burning in front of the bread of the presence, and in front of the mercy seat of God. And I can picture Jesus in the temple courts. These people, similar to this situation, all listening to Him teaching. And over His shoulder, whether visible or just known as to where it was, was the menorah literally burning in the temple. So that they knew that the bread of the presence and the mercy seat of God was under light. And so as, as the people were looking probably towards the most holy place, probably looking towards, whether, as, as I said, whether they could see the menorah or not, they knew it was there. And Jesus says, I am that light. I am the light of the world. It was not misunderstood by the people, by Israel, by the, the, the Jews of those days, in those temple courts, being taught that Jesus was saying, I am the one that shines light on the mercy of God and the presence of God, and I am, the light, I am the mercy of God and the presence of God. It's so helpful when we understand some of the context in history because we just read these words, I am the light of the world, and it doesn't mean nearly as much as what Jesus was intending it to mean. I am the light of the world. And so what God is saying is this, that my mercy is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks of the year, every single year. My mercy is available. My presence is available. It is never in darkness. It is never hidden. It is always in the light. If you are sitting here today and you feel that God has gone dark on you, That he's hidden his presence from you. I want to tell you that he has not hidden his presence from you. And if you reach out to the light of the world, if you reach out to Jesus today, his presence is there. His mercy is there. Forgiveness for sin is there. Life is there. Security is there. Will you just reach out your hand to Jesus today? The mercy and the presence of God. Jesus. Says, I am that. I am the light of the world. What is our response to Jesus' statement? I am the light of the world. God used light to attract attention for salvation, where Jesus, it was understood by the Jews of those days that Jesus was saying, I am both the way of salvation and I am your Savior. God used light as both a guide and a shield. It was understood by the Jews of the day that Jesus was saying, I'm actually your guide and your safety and security. God used light to reveal his glory. It was understood by the Jews of that day that Jesus, when he said, I am the light of the world, was saying, I reveal the mercy of God and the presence of God, and I am the mercy and the presence of God. That's what they would have understood. And so we bring it to today to us and we receive these words, can we receive these words in the same way that Israel would have received them on that Feast of Tabernacles when Jesus stood up in the temple courts and said these words? And so John, who is regarded as uh, self-confessed, his, is Jesus' closest friend, uh, he writes in the Gospel of John about Jesus being the light of the world, that he says this is what Jesus said. But then he writes a few letters as well, to try and help people understand. And so, in John's first letter, we're going to read this. So, this is how we should respond to Jesus at this time, to Jesus' words. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7 to 7, says this, "...this is the message we have heard from Him, and we declare to you. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live in the truth." Live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. And so, what John is encouraging us around these words of Jesus is this, that we can have fellowship with Jesus. That is not a distant hope. That is a present reality, and it is able to be a present reality for us. That is what John is saying if we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. And so we, we read that in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul also says, What fellowship can light have with darkness? And so there's this whole contrast of light and dark. And what John is encouraging us is if we say that we follow Jesus, let us live our lives in the light and we can have fellowship with Jesus. As the mercy of God was always under light, as the presence of God was always under light, that's where we have fellowship with Him, under light. And so if we say we're following Him, but we're keeping parts of us hidden, it says there is no fellowship. This is where part of the teaching, which I found so helpful last week um, of John, where he just says, Jesus was quite comfortable to live in the binary, one and zero, You you can have presence in the light, fellowship in the light, or you can have fellowship in the dark. You just can't mix the two. And so, are you having fellowship in the dark, or are you having fellowship in the light? And so our responsibility is to come into the presence. When when, when we want to come into the presence, we automatically step. So if we take it kind of pre-Jesus, we step into the light of the menorah. We step into the light to be at the bread of the presence. We step into the light to have the mercy seat of God. Now Jesus, I am that light. We step into the light and we have the presence and the mercy of Jesus. And so fellowship is available as we step into the light, as we stop living lives that are hidden, This is the invitation from Jesus that the mercy of God is always available and the presence of God is always available. And then secondly, we see in verse 7 that the fellowship with each other is what is also offered to us by Jesus. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Here's the problem with our human psyche. We think that if you know, I think that if you know parts of the real dark me, You may take a step away from me. But what John is saying is no fellowship with each other is when we bring those dark parts into the light. That actually as I start to reveal myself and the the struggles and the things of sin and the grip of sin in my life. And as I start to put them on the table, we start to walk closer together, not further apart. And so the very thing that we think is shameful, the very thing that we are guilty of, the very thing that separates us from one another, we are being encouraged by John to say, no, bring it out. That thing which you think is shameful is not bring it into the light and you'll walk closer with each other. You'll have better fellowship with one another. And certainly those of us that endeavor to live our lives that way, would, that would be our story, our testimony that we have better fellowship with each other. And I know that it is hard, and I know that it is scary to do that, to reveal the dark parts of ourselves. But this is what Jesus is encouraging us to do. He's saying, I can rescue you. I can rescue you. you don't have to be in the wind and the waves and the dark without any equipment and running out of food and your soul despairing. You don't have to keep hidden those things. There is a light that we take hold of for security and for life and for splendor of life. And for all the glory of God, and if we just bring it into the light, we're okay. And so I want to encourage us this week to take a step. To take a step. If Jesus being, I am the light of the world, has meant something today to you, and as you go home and ponder it, I I want to encourage you to take a step of faith. I want you to... I would would ask you this. Could you get hold of a trusted friend and reveal something that you're battling with? Get hold of a trusted friend and reveal something that you're battling with. I'm not ignorant to think that you're going to go dive straight into the deepest, darkest secret. We build trust with one another. But as we let go of possibly something a bit surface, I'm battling with this and... You see how someone responds to that. We might go, oh, wow, okay, they responded a bit differently to what I thought. Maybe I can go one layer down. Maybe I can go one layer down. Maybe I can live fully in the light over time. We build community over time. But it takes trust and it takes careful consideration. And so I want to encourage you that if you're on the other side of that, if you are the trusted person that someone gets hold of. Let's treat that person in the same way that we would want to be treated when we put our stuff before them. With humility and gentleness and compassion and mercy. All the things that God introduces himself with and as. And so as we listen to these words, I am the light of the world. You can have fellowship with me and you can have fellowship with each other. That's the invitation and the offer for all of us today. It's in our hands to take the next step. If we were to take hold of Jesus and then take hold of each other.